Augusta National Golf Club. Nestled among flowering dogwoods, framed by towering pines, the expanse between has been shaped by the winds of history. Arnold Palmer is the master champion of 1960. Maybe. Yes, sir! There it is! A life changer. Got a chance. Sergio. These grounds lie patiently and wait for new stories to emerge. This is a place that you drive up Magnolia Lane and just things change for everyone. You just uh, have that special feeling, that special remembrance of when you were a kid and dreaming of coming here and, and playing, and it brings out oftentimes the best in everyone. So I think one of the, the great things about this course is it forces you to be creative. And I like that side of the game. I would dearly love to win this tournament one day. I don't really need to win again. Uh, I really want to. This is the story of the Masters. You are listening to the Inquisitive Bro Podcast. We are taping this on a Thursday. Big ups to Jim Nance for the intro there. I don't think any of us could have done it better than him. I don't think anyone does it better than him. But we are here to preview the 2020 Masters. And to help me do it, I'm joined by two of the biggest golf fanatics I know, Grant Thompson and Brooker Cowie. But first, I'm going to throw it to my co-host, Andrew. Andrew, what are your opening thoughts? This was supposed to be April 2020. Because of COVID, we're doing a Masters preview pod in November just so everybody at home knows just how avid golfers you are, between the three of you this year, how many rounds of golf have you played this summer? I've done at least over 60. I think Graham and Brooker, you guys are over 100 maybe. Me and Chris have played two 45-hole days this summer. Yeah, that's true. We've had a couple like epic, uh, epic match play rounds that solved nothing. You guys played 45 holes of golf in one day? Yeah. Came yeah. down to a tie in the dark. It was. Uh, I would assume it's dark if you played 12 hours of golf. Always bad blood. <laughs> bad blood between friends that's all right though but listen man we got a lot to talk about today and we got some good guys here to do it so we're going to start by reliving last masters championship where obviously tiger won but we're going to go through that a little bit set the stage so people can get a feel for how that went and how this is going to go uh next week are you sure you don't want to relive the 2018 masters where patrick reed won i think Graham might want to he loves oh, the purple I, I love this guy are you a big, you a big patrick reed fan he, you know, he's a great devil's advocate. So, How so? So here's the story with this guy, is that he does so many things that are so over the top. Going back to about one of his first wins on a tour, he declared himself a top five player in the world after being on tour for a year. So I actually do have a funny story about Reed. So it goes back to me and my buddy Tanner in Kelowna, shout out to Tanner, is we used to go to the bar a lot and Sunday we'd be hung over watching golf and he wasn't a golfer at all. As a matter of fact, he just kind of got into it after watching so many times of me on the couch. 
and one day we're flipping it on and it's the masters and here's this like chubby guy with a purple shirt and he's winning the masters and my friend goes who who is that and i say you've never heard of him i said that's the best golfer ever he's his name is the purple donut <laughs> and he just <laughs> ever since then we have a nickname for patrick reed the purple donut and then ironically enough when tiger won the masters last year it was the purple donut handing over the jacket so I always have that inside joke, the two goats. The two goats. The goats. You're also forgetting to mention that he's quite the cheater. And if it is one thing, if Tiger's not going to get away with uh, taking a drop on 13 and getting called out on TV, there's no chance that Patrick Reed's going to get away with building sandcastles in the uh, in the sand traps. Oh, definitely not. He heard about that in Australia. <laughs> did, did you just buy his explanation? Like that backswing? Like, oh no, it was like natural backswing. No, of course not. Patrick Reed is like a notorious cheater. He's also very disliked among the tour pros. I mean, all the way back to his days at the University of Georgia. Dude, this guy was hated in college? Nobody's hated in college. No, no, like there's literally, there's literally quotes about him. was like, they wouldn't piss on him if he's on fire. He is a total knob. He's really hated. If you look at like Ryder Cup videos, because he's that good. He makes the Ryder Cup. If you look at the videos, it's like Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth when he was good, broing it out. And then Patrick Reed's like in the back. No one <laughs> talks to him. Grand just just my last tune in with that story, which is kind of funny, is yeah. that golf is an honor system. And Brooker's not wrong. Patrick Reed on a tour standards has been known to push angles, as I'll call it. And change but lies. The thing is, if you're on the BJ tour, it's almost impossible to cheat week in, week out. You've got the cameras on you 24-7. You've got fans there. With that being said, now that there's no fans in the arena, I remember watching a, a photo of Daniel Berger following him into the woods because there's no nobody, <laughs> nobody to police him. I've seen that. I've seen that. <laughs> it's like, it was like a meme about it, protecting the field, and Daniel Berger is just standing over Patrick Reed with his arms crossed, being like, nope, not today. <laughs> Daniel Berger, good guy, also good golfer, but he's also not in this field. Th- that is one of the controversies about this year is that because it's a 2020 April event, they're going off who would have been in the Masters leading into that week as opposed to the current November time frame. So yeah. there's actually three players. I want to say it's uh, Harris English, Daniel Berger, and... I'm blanking on the Victor third. Hovland. Victor well, Hovland, yeah. Victor Hovland, Hovland was actually going to be one of my picks because he was low amateur, I'm pretty sure, if not last year, the year before. He was, a, he was low amateur in 2019. Let's get to the 2019 recap then to fill in the listeners on what happened last time uh, before we get into what's maybe going to happen this time. Andrew, so, you got some stuff prepared. Go for it. Yeah, man. So, like, let's be honest here. When I was... I watch Masters every year. I watch a lot of golf. But last year's Masters, especially on the Sunday, which is what we're going to recap right now, the amount of people that are reaching out and texting me that do not watch golf ever, right, was unbelievable. Guys, girls, young, old, like my mom was texting me. She's like, Tiger's in the lead. I'm like, I know that. Why do you know that? It was unbelievable. So this this little recap here uh, is going to be mostly to jog your memory, but I bet a lot of people, whether you're big golf fans or not, remember what happened. But let's get right into it. Going into the final round, do you guys remember the issue with the rain? I do. I do. Yeah, yeah. so r- big thunderstorm in the forecast for Sunday afternoon. I'm pretty sure they actually started some people off the back nine. They started some people off the back nine. Everybody was going out in groups of three instead of the typical yeah, groups of two. Finish. And they started super early. Like, I remember getting up at, I think it was like 7.30 at some alarm clock for 
to catch like some early tea times. It was like way different than normal masters. Honestly, I couldn't even sleep. And that the night might have before. played a, yeah. a major role in it. Is that I think it put Tiger in Molinari's group to go out as three. It was Maybe, huge because it would have been Finau, yeah. right? You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, Finau's definitely not the issue in that group, judging how he's playing this year. So no. But no. to play with Tiger and to have him on, like, actually physically his presence there. Oh, totally. Yeah. Man, the Tiger. It makes a difference. So clear. And we'll get into this as the preview round goes on. The Tiger effect was in full swing with Molinari. Like, especially as we got later down the stretch, he got psyched out for sure. Andrew, have you heard of the Molinari effect? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, neither have I. No one has. <laughs> yeah, no, not an issue. <laughs> Guy intimidates no one but himself. But uh, listen, that early start, I think it probably helped Tiger a little bit. Like, if you guys know Tiger's pre round routine, he's typically up at like four. Right, he gets a stretching in, gets an early breakfast, gets a workout in, hits some golf balls. Well, really you know why he does that, right? Because he's old. Yeah, he never used to do that when like '97 Masters. Tiger Woods is not waking up 4 a.m. to do that. Dude, '97 Masters, Tiger wakes up four minutes before his tea time, goes out, beats everybody by ten, and goes home. Yeah, he pures it. No, it's because he's got all these back issues, his back and also his glutes, because he ca- always talks about activating his glutes. Um, they're tight, so he has to do all this yoga and stretching to get them loose before a round. That's why he doesn't play that much anymore. It takes so much effort for him to just get into like the form that he needs to do. Listen, man, I get well, honestly, it. thank God he got his back fused. Otherwise, I don't think we would have seen what he did. At this I mean, yeah, he got his back fused oh, a few it times. It would have been yeah. game over. No, no, yeah. he had he had four back surgeries, and it was the first time that they actually fused like the uh, vertebrae in his back. I see, like tight together. Like, do you guys remember the dark times, like between the U.S. Open win and the last Masters win, when Tiger was just missing <laughs> cuts and like. Like cringing, like couldn't tie his shoe. It's unbelievable. I, if you really think about it, it might be one of the top, not just golf, like 100% for golf, but I'm saying sports comebacks all time. It's oh, the, I mean, his win last year is arguably the, the best master story, uh, potentially second to Jack Nicholas's 1986 win, but it's right up there. It, it's a tremendous comeback story uh, for him to do. And also, he did it in a completely different way than he usually did, coming back from behind instead of starting ahead. But if you think of the setbacks, even comparison to Jack, it's like he went through the mental hurdles of getting over the scandal. Yeah. This, I mean, he didn't win a major guys for 11 years. Yeah, poor guy had so much sex oh. and then, like, <laughs> just couldn't get over it for years. Well, that's what, what makes it so memorable is it's not just reporters that were doubting him. Like, you had guys on tour that are saying, this guy's never going to come back. Like, Pat Perez, for one, was just throwing this guy. I mean, like, there's no chance he'll ever win a major, if not a tournament. Oh, everybody was, man. Yeah. Everybody decided to jump on when he was down, kick him while he was down. That was a mistake. The thing with Tiger, and he was so dominant, if he doesn't win for a year, two years, everyone jumps off the bandwagon immediately saying he's done. So in 2009, when the scandal happened and he lost his golf swing, he didn't lose his golf swing necessarily. He actually changed to Sean Foley and was going through the transitions, and he's done this historically. He's been the best player in the game and changed his golf swing four different times, always come back as the number one. I didn't have a doubt that he'd get back there, and he did. But once the back surgeries, and it was about 2015, I I gave up, man. I thought, he's done. You can't come back from having three back surgeries and come back. And then, sure enough, he had that spinal fusion one. And I I remember, I was like, there's no way he's coming back. So that's around when you switched to being a Patrick Reed fan, because you used to be a huge (laughs) Tiger fan. You had to find the next guy. Yeah. (laughs) He's a pretty good-looking guy. <laughs> yeah, I <I'd> agree. <laughs> All right, man. We we've been trying to set up this this. Oh yeah, let's get into the, let's get into the, yeah, yeah, let's yeah, get into the recap. Sure, sure. All right. So as we mentioned, Patrick Reed won the previous year 
this tournament, he was a non-factor. Ended up finishing at two under, well out of contention. So a new champion would obviously be crowned. Going into the final round, this is what the top of the leaderboard looked like. Molinari at 13 under. He had Finau and Tiger tied for third at minus 11. He had Kepka at minus 10. Now, some notables. Dustin Johnson at minus 8. He'd end up making a big push late. Uh, had a putt to tie it right at the end. Yeah, man. absolutely. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, we didn't know it was to tie at the end, but it ended up being a putt to tie at the end. The always colorful Ricky Fowler at minus 7. And, of course, big lefty Phil Mickelson. He was well back at 5 under, but not a bad showing for Phil. So, we mentioned this earlier. Going into the final round of the Masters, the previous 4 out of 5 leaders or co-leaders have always gone on to win. So, with a 2-stroke lead going into that final round, would you guys say that Molinari blew it? Was it not his tournament to lose? This was his only chance. Molinari's not going to get another chance like this again. He's not playing nearly as well this year, for example. He was hot going into it, and he blew it on number 12, like many people blown it on number 12. He also blew it on number 15, too. Yeah, bit. I would say 1,000% He this was his tournament to lose because going into the back nine of this round, he only had two bogeys up until that point, which is, like, this guy was steady Eddie all the way through. Yeah. And then, you know... Collapse City. It's also kind of funny that, like, I mean, he's not known for his length. It's his ball striking. That's what does it for him. And he's a supremely talented ball striking. And then that's what screwed him at the end. Poor iron shot at number 12. Couple poor shots on number yeah. 15. You know what the big difference was, though, between the first three rounds and the fourth round? He was in the final pairing with Tiger Woods on day four. That is a much different vibe and a much different crowd. Absolutely. 100%. So let's get into it. We're going to jump ahead. We're going to go right to hole seven where Molinari had opened up a three-shot lead over Tiger, but big back-to-back birdies on seven and eight, uh, coupled with a big errant tee shot for Molinari, would have Tiger back in the game. And he was only one back through nine. Now, at this point, I know it was a while ago, but do you guys remember, how did you feel after nine, Tiger's one back? Did you think he was going to be able to overcome that one-shot deficit? Graham. Okay, I'm actually going to go back to hole number five, because okay. that was the turning point for me when I, in my mind when I thought, He's done. And this is really kind of a funny story. I read an article almost a year later, a reporter who was covering a whole to whole description of what went on. And he actually recapped a story on the grounds, which is quite funny. Is that after hole five, Tiger three putted and he is furious. And the reporter actually said is that he walked up the green and ended up going to the washroom and then the rumor is that he actually went to relieve himself on hole five <laughs> and then he went on hole six hit a dart like a really good yeah, shot he stiffed it on six hey, darn. the putt and that's the turning point when in my mind i thought he's just doesn't have it today like like he's just you got to make the putts you got to convert and then seven just hits it to a foot birdies eight and right back in the ball game just one back and and the turning point was on maybe the arguably the most important shot of the entire day and this is to the average golf fan this is overlooked was the lag putt on nine gives it a cautious go Look at this. Not going to be short, is it? There it goes. This is just perfection. Look at the the apex. It's all yours, Jeff. Oh, my goodness. 
Oh, not quite. <laughs> he knew it. So how about that? It was a 50-foot putt. It's honestly like putting down a mini ski slope at Augusta. Like, that putt is so ridiculous to get close. It, the announcer says, he's like, you could putt that a hundred times. Uh, you're not getting it closer than he did. And that is the turning point. Like you just have to hang in and not make mistakes. Yeah, that was huge. Speaking of like number seven, I have no stats for this, but I feel like Tiger's got to be one of the all time best players on number seven. That's why like one of the toughest holes on the course and he does really well on it. Well, it's going to be interesting this year because with no fans, it's funny you say that hole as I was reading his interview about talking about the course setup with no fans. It's a hole where you can't actually see anything in the background because on TV, you can't tell, but you're hitting pretty uphill and with no fans, you have no aim point. So he actually says on that hole, what he normally does is he'll pick a fan in the background and he'll cut it to another fan. And he said, with no fans, like how do you start the ball on the line you want to start the ball on? It's going to be interesting. That's actually really interesting. Okay. Let's keep going on the recap then. So he finishes the front nine and then, as they say, the old adage, the tournament doesn't start till the back nine of uh, the Sunday. That was true for this or, tournament. Or Amen's Corner. Yeah, or Amen's Corner. Yeah. Comes quick on the back nine, so it's pretty much the same thing. So Molinari, through the front nine, he played it even. So did Tony Finau. Um, so Tiger sat one back. So after bogeys on 10 and 12, Finau was basically done. I mean, like technically he ended up birdieing the next three of, of four holes but, you know, mentally, like, he was out of it. He wasn't in it. So this was a two-man race going down the stretch. Finau's one of those guys, and there's a couple guys we can talk about, but Finau's one of those guys who plays best once the pressure's off. So on the back nine, we're going to skip to the 12th hole. We talked about it a little bit uh, earlier, but now we're going to really break it down. This was a big hole. 158 yards to the pin. Uh, when Tiger's group got to the tee box, we had talked about this, I believe three out of the four prior golfers had landed it short into the water. Given that being the case, I'm going to ask you guys, as very avid and pretty good golfers, knowing what happened to the previous group, would you change something? Is the ball not carrying as far? Is it is there wind that maybe you didn't feel originally? Would you go down a club? Would you do something different? Absolutely, yeah. He, he basically, I actually did read the uh, press conference after when he talks about that hold, and he says that because he saw... Brooks go in the water and he figured Brooks has probably hit nine iron. He said, my nine iron flighted is not going to make that back right corner unless I hit it on the screw. So he said, my margin for error is so much wider if I aim for the center. Cause the worst thing that happens if, is if the wind pops up and he doesn't, doesn't get there, he's in the front bunker. That's the veteran move. Yeah. Like if you go for the pin on the right side on the Sunday at the masters, unless you need a birdie, that's the dumb move. Like, that's always dumb. Like, the veteran move and what Tiger did is aim for the middle because if you're short, you're in the bunker short. If you're long, you're in the bunker long. And if you hit it good, then you're in the middle of the green, which is what Tiger ultimately did. The other thing is, when I was doing research for this thing, I read that where, uh, you know how they say, like, on 12, the wind swirls. Like, there's a reason why people keep dumping it in the drink because it's unpredictable wind. But really what it is is the wind during April is traditionally coming from the south, which is going into you on 12. Those trees at the back of 12, they line the very edge of the master's property. It's at the very southeast end of the property. Now, the wind is coming through those trees. They did studies. Apparently, the way those trees function is actually creates like a speed channel for the wind. So even though the rest of the course, the wind might be slight, on 12, it actually increases the wind speed. That is why you consistently see 
people end up short on 12th, it's because they don't feel it and it's actually coming in stronger because of the way the trees are and they'll end up short. But hold up, you know this because you read it somewhere. You're telling me that pro caddies and pro golfers aren't aware of this? You know, that's the thing about major golf. Pressure moments, sometimes the biggest things that people make mistakes on is club selection. Right. And especially when you're in the heat of the moment and they know their distances perfectly. It's not like us type golfers where we have ranges. And it's like, ah, this is about a nine iron for me. They know exactly how far they hit these certain clubs. For sure. So like if they see a number they like, they might try to pull off a shot and it doesn't work out. To put it in perspective, Brooks actually said after the round, he said, I flushed that on 12. I hit that on the screws and the wind popped up where Molinari, you could like off the bat, you could tell he hit it thin. That yeah. was pressure. I, mean, yeah. I was, was going to touch on that actually when you were talking about the bunkers aiming at that specific spot. If you look at the four guys that went in the water on Sunday, they all missed it at the exact same spot. They went flag hunting, and it's shaved there. So if you land in the rough or even in, in the fringe area, that ball's coming straight back. Whereas if they're just a slight hair off to the left, they're in that front bunker, and they're safe. Let's talk about how this actually went down. So Molinari was the first to go in that final group. Uh, with a two-stroke lead, he tees off. Only two here yesterday. Molinari double bogeys that hole, and we are all tied up at 11. This is when you start to get excited. Oh, I remember me and Brooker had a little lapper in the living room after yeah, that. Yeah, we, we were going absolutely nuts when that happened. Yeah. Like, I figured when you see the amount of people that went in the water prior to him, that I was like, there's no way Molinari's going in the water here. You know what the crazy thing about Molinari going in the water is? That's only the second worst moment on 12 in the past five years. Yep. (laughs) Two-stroke lead going into it, and it's only the second worst thing that's ever happened. Hi, Spieth. Okay, before we leave hole number 12, let me ask you guys this. If Molinari doesn't go in the drink, given the fact where the scores were at the time, do you believe Tiger goes pin-seeking on that hole instead of playing it safe? No, absolutely not, because he had no margin for error. You'd have to hit, like, a perfect 9-iron to cover that flag on the right. If it comes up short, he's dead. His tournament's over. I think if we're going to actually talk about the key factor here, if you look on Sundays on 12, what the actual scoring average is, I think a par, you'll actually pick up strokes with a par. So I don't think it necessarily means that you have to go for birdie with the two par fives coming up down the road. I'm it's, just a little, thinking, it's a little different. It's I'm a little different when he sticks it, though. He puts it within five. Does Tiger feel the pressure to then? Okay, well, it's that? one thing if he sticks it, but I, like, say for example, as a hypothetical, Molinari puts it where Tiger actually did, yeah. and like middle of the green, he plays it safe, most likely a par. He plays the same mistake-free golf that he'd done all day, and that would have gotten him like to the lead at that point. Tiger is a tactician, and he knows he's got the par fives coming. Tiger's not a guy who makes. Uh, needless risk because more likely than not in golf that's going to actually screw you he's like one of the most steady like mentally tough guys that there is i think he plays the exact same shot and if he ends up parring as well and he's still down two going to 13 he thinks okay like now it's time to make moves on the par fives and worst case scenario you can still stick a shot on 16 which he ended up doing we can talk about but there's holes coming up that you can make up the strokes you don't risk it pin seeking on 12 with the water all right so 13 and 14 uh both tiger and molinari go birdie par so we're gonna jump to the now infamous par 5 15th 
This is how it went down. Tiger crushes his drive down the fairway, ends up going right side, but he's fine. Molinari pulls his far right, forcing him to lay up. His layup went far left, playing way across the fairway, probably a little further carry than he wanted to. Tiger ends up hitting his approach right on the green, sticks it, you know, two two putts in for birdie, played the hole perfectly. Here's a caveat to this hole. Bit of a conspiracy theory, maybe it's not, we'll see what you guys think. Seeing where Molinari ended up after his layup, Tiger hits his approach shot, and instead of waiting, he immediately bolts it towards the green. In his Sunday Tiger Red, he's standing in the back of the green, staring down Molinari as he attempts his approach shot. As we know, with Tiger in view, Molinari pulls up. Well, this one here at 15, Nick, is going to be really delicate. Out of the second cut for Molinari, 79 yards. And evidently, it's going to be difficult. Holy Lamborghinis, Peter. Clean contact. Just... Ends up hitting a tree branch, splash, into the water, second double bogey on the back nine, his tourney is done, was Tiger intentionally playing Sunday Tiger mind games with that walk to the green, yes or no? I think you could definitely say he was playing my games. Um, Graham and I actually were watching that shot prior, prior to coming here, and he flushed the absolute crap out of that second shot. And like people say, there's nothing better than a true, like good golf shot. Some people would even say it's it's better than sex. For me, I could say that myself. Well, you're just not very good at one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, 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 like I said, I did not know that he went ahead. And, and uh, I think there's a good chance that he was playing mind games and inevitably it panned out. Of course he was. Tiger, that's like Tiger's MO. He knows his power with the fans. He does this a lot. He does this on many tournaments, especially if he's sour. He typically does this when he's in a bad mood, but not he, even though he'll, he'll be front running and he'll stand on a. You know, he's very deliberate with the side of the tee deck. He'll stand on like he's not. It's not, but it's not just him. It's not so much him where he is. He knows where the fans are going to move. He will purposely like move at like opportune times to get the herds moving to get like people when they're hitting in their peripherals. They're just seeing masses of fans going. Cause he's got that. He's got like the people following him. He knows that. And he does that to his advantage. And that tiger red does stick out like a sore thumb. So listen, man, you don't win as many tournaments as tiger has by accident. All these little mind games, I'm sure he's doing them on purpose and they're clearly paying off. Well, talent helps, but being good at golf also helps. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, contrary to Chris's point earlier, because there's a reason why the guy is the best front runner ever in golf. So here's a fact about golf that most people don't know. Most winners on the PGA Tour actually win from behind. Roughly, I want to say it's about 58% come from behind. But Tiger won about 54 of 58 tournaments in his life winning with the lead going into the final round. And there's a reason for that. It's because he doesn't make mistakes. And basically, if you actually go back and you can watch interviews of Tiger talking at his junior days, he says, I'm not going to make a mistake. They have to play their best golf to beat me. And that's very true. Well, yeah, that that's completely accurate. Tiger's one of the best front runners. Well, if not the best front runner ever, um, his classic Sunday major round is not like a low round. It's just a smooth 70 or 69. No mistakes, right. gets a couple under, and the other guy's got to like shoot. And, and the crazy other opponent, under because he does this so often, they know he's not going to make a mistake. So then they force themselves to execute a shot they can't hit. There's a there's a classic line with Tiger 
when you go into the final day, it's he knows he's going to win. You know he's going to win. And he knows that you know he's going to win. <laughs> That's great. Um, anyway, listen, man, at this point, Molinari, in my opinion, his tournament was over. He was three shots back at that point with three holes to go. Done for him. You guys want to talk a little Patrick Cantlay, though, at this point, right? Yeah, it wasn't done for everyone else. Yeah, so at 15, I'm pretty sure he made eagle, which actually uh, brought him right up into the lead with Alexander Shoffley, if I'm not mistaken. One of the cool things about Patrick Cantlay, after the cut was done, he was only at plus two. So this guy climbed all the way to minus 12, coming into that back nine, or like those final three, that the final stretch of holes. And uh, it's... It's testament to his talent. Patrick Cantley is one of the best golfers that no one really knows about until he won the Zozo last week. <laughs> Which I'm kind of upset about because in terms of betting on players, that's... Oh, that shot him up. Yeah, um, <laughs> big time. We can talk about that, but he's now the same as Brooksy. Patrick Cantley is actually one of the biggest college standouts since Tiger, honestly. He had one of the best college careers, and he had a back injury. So that's why people never heard of him. He kind of came out into her... He had a couple personal issues and then a back, like crippling back injury, and now he seems back. And hey, man, which so, of us hasn't had a couple personal issues and a crippling back injury? It happens to the best of us. Exactly. That's how, blame, that's how you become Kelly. a good golfer. Maybe, maybe that's what it was. I mean, listen, man, for this for the 2019 Masters, as far as going down the stretch, once Molinari was out of it, you mentioned Cantlay, Shafley, they made a push at the end, but I mean, Tiger played it safe, cruised to the end, bogeyed the 18th, didn't really matter, ended up taking that one shot lead and. And going home with his 15th major championship. Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. Yeah, Tiger played the classic Tiger final round, except he came from behind, but played essentially mistake-free golf. I mean, he made some bogeys, but down the stretch, he didn't make the mistakes that like other people did. He shot two under. Like... Steady round. He yeah. shot. He shot what he needed to win, right? I I would say the one person that he got saved by in terms of making double on twelve was Brooks Kepka, because he followed that double up with an eagle on thirteen, and if he doesn't double twelve, like that's Brooks's in the he's in the bag to win that tournament. Yeah, we can talk. We'll get into Brooks when we actually get into the preview, but. Yeah. But now we're all set up. We know what, what happened happens. last time. We're going to talk about what's going to happen this week. I'm excited. You're excited. We're going to talk about it. Stick around. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Inquisitive Bro Podcast. We know you listen to us, but more importantly, we want to hear from you. Did you disagree with one of our takes? Did you catch a mistake that we made? Do you have your own take about something we discussed that maybe we didn't consider or failed to mention? If that's the case, we want to hear from you. Hit us up on Instagram at the Inquisitive Bro. Or if you want to just reach out and say what up, that's cool too. If you make a good point, bring us an interesting take of your own or you get us talking about something cool you brought to the table, you just may hear us giving you a shout-out and discussing your take on our next podcast. All right, well, we're not done yet. As always, thanks for listening. Now, back to the pod. Okay, we're done with the 2019 Masters recap, and I should probably mention that Andrew is no longer here. Andrew is not a golf fan so much as he is a Tiger fan, so he wanted to join for the Tiger Circle Jerk, but now that he's gone, it's time to get in the nitty-gritty. And now, one of the biggest stories going into this Masters, guys, is, I don't know if you noticed, but it's not April, it's actually November, and a lot of people are wondering how the course is going to play in November, so I did some research into this. Basically, the gist of it is going to play a lot longer, but specifically, the wind changes. So guys, like, typically speaking, 
on a normal masters, the wind is coming from the south. So holes like 11, 12, 10, and 2 are all into the wind. In November, that switches from the north. Those are downwind. Amen Corner is going to be downwind. Number 5, the hardest hole on the course last year is going to be downwind. So guys, I'm wondering, how do you see the course playing and the guys doing on a course where like some of the hardest holes are actually downwind and also it's going to play softer what are your thoughts well obviously bryson will strive the green on every hole but <laughs> <laughs> no honestly i think that it'll be really interesting to see how it plays one of the things that augusta does is that they cut the grain straight into the t deck so the ball is not going to really release at this time of year so it's going to play long that's my guess yeah, you have, a, you have a wind that's coming out of the east in April. In November, they say it's actually coming out of the north. So holes 1 and 18 actually play extremely long. And I think Tiger did say... 1 is going to be a crosswind if it's windy. 18 is completely into the wind. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And I think Tiger did actually come out and say that... I think he played it in October. And both holes 1 and 18, he took driver 3-wood. Like, think about on a par 4, taking a 3-wood into the green, especially on 18. Yeah, it's going to be completely different. And I should also say, like, one of the reasons why it's going to play longer, because that's what everyone says, and there's reason for that, is one, traditionally in November, temperatures are obviously lower than they are in uh, in April. That actually won't be a factor this year, likely, if you look at the forecast into next week. Um, temperatures in at Augusta, Georgia are going to be around 79 Fahrenheit, so that's like 27 degrees uh, Celsius. That's actually April average there. So... It's going to be average temperature for an April Masters. One of the differences, though, is that the fairways at Augusta are, when they're playing it, is ryegrass. So it's Bermuda grass during the summer. It's ryegrass during the actual playing season. What they have to do is they seed the grass after the Bermuda grass becomes brown. You guys saw, like, all those... Uh, oh, yeah, I saw uh, those pictures. Yeah, all those it's pictures crazy. of Augusta National looking brown. That's actually the, the Bermuda grass finishing its season its growing season and browning out once that happens they plant ryegrass now the ryegrass takes time to uh catch so what they're doing during early uh fall into the 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 winter is they're watering it a ton to make sure that the that the grass catches so it's going to be soggier also in augusta uh during the late summer early fall it rains a lot more during the winter it's a lot more dry so Whereas the temperature itself might actually be quite balmy for the uh, for the time the time period, the fairways are going to be much more wet and it's not going to roll as much. So it's going to play longer. You're going to have longer irons into greens and longer shots. Yeah, so, like when the, when those when those photos actually were first released, uh, showing the overseeding, I was blown away. I was like, this is like farmland like what are we looking at this is not the masters where it's like you got the magnolia trees like it's lush it's green it's whatever you you know picture the masters to be and when i saw those photos i was just like okay i guess we're just not going to have a masters this year this is really unfortunate but in terms of like a november masters it being the first one you know I'm still wrapping my head around it. Like it still doesn't feel like the masters, but I will say like, I don't get excited necessarily for Christmas. Like I won't lose sleep over Christmas, but when it comes to the masters, like there's a good chance I could be up till four in the morning, Wednesday night, getting ready for this masters because I am super stoked. And it's a bittersweet moment because, you know, usually you're waiting a full year for the masters. We get two masters in less than six months. 
So you're the one of the guys that wakes up like right when live at the Masters starts airing at oh, I'm like ready 5 a.m. I'm, I'm fired up. I'm fired up. <laughs> they could cancel the NHL, the NBA. When they canceled the Masters, it was game over. It was like, no, it's 2020 is real. This November Masters, it is going to play different. And one of the common uh, refrains, or I should say like one of the common references you get from this is going back to the, the 2007 Masters, which was notably cold and windy that zach johnson won it played super long but a short hitter won it so my question to you guys is if it's playing long do you think that some of the big bombers that we'll get into like the brysons but also djs john rom tony finau etc rory mcelroy those guys have an advantage or do you think it actually gives an advantage to ball strikers who can maybe they don't get to the par fives and two but maybe the big guys don't either and it's about a wedge game what do you guys think graham go first well i think the game has evolved since 2007 like that's a big difference is that there's so many guys who bomb it now who are also tremendous ball strikers i mean you could go to john ram you could go to bryson you could go to even a guy i don't think justin thomas suits very well for this course because he's a fader of the ball but guys like that he's still the best on the pga tour with his long iron game uh I think that long guys always had advantage in the PGA Tour in 2020. It's a different, it's a whole different game of golf. Like the guys have evolved physically, mentally, everything. Yeah, they do say like when it comes to the Masters, it actually does favor lefties. Um, and I would say that, you know, the Bombers aren't going to have a problem at this course. But what I will say where the cold is going to have an effect is scrambling. So if you, say you're not a long hitter and you're going to be missing greens, you're going to have to be good at getting up and down, especially on this course. That's actually a really good point that I didn't think of because I was thinking about like guys just getting in the fairway and what the club's coming in. But that's a good point. One thing I will say, and this is just going back to how the course is, the greens will still be lightning fast. Now, this is actually very interesting, and I didn't know this before doing research, and maybe you guys did or not, but basically Augusta National has a very robust subterrain climate control system around the greens because the way the elevation changes are augusta national in general uh on a normal day has several microclimates that for if you're someone who's growing grass to like a very very specific level like it actually makes big differences when you're low on low on the ground on 12 or all the way up at the highest point on 18 so what they do is they've had all these pipes installed underneath to create microclimates on the greens to make sure that they're all exactly pristine. Also, the greens are bent grass, which thrive in cooler climates anyway. But point is, the greens are still going to be lightning fast. So it's going to be a very hard course. It's going to be longer, but still just as fast. And I think you should probably expect much higher scores than usual. Yeah, that's actually a very good point. I I did not know that about that course. Um, Where it comes down to ball striking, like Justin Thomas is a guy that can is one of the best, if not the best ball striker in the game. Um, where I see he's going to have a lot of problems on this course are the contours on, on those greens. Like he's not, what was he? I think out of the top 100 in, in putting. So, so I wrote a lot on Justin Thomas because here's a spoiler. He is actually my pick to win this tournament coming in. I think he's ready for it. It's bold. It is bold, but you got to be bold sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not picking Bryson, although I think he'll, he'll do well. So I was reading some stuff and like, basically they did studies and, Augusta National is, although you have to be long, the average hitter at Augusta National to win it averaged 297 yards on their driving distance. To put in perspective, 
last year, over 100 people averaged longer than that. It's not about your drives per se. It's a second shot course to the point that in the last few Masters, the number one strokes gain player on approach shots have finished first, first, second, and third. Yeah, I would say that's a good argument, though, why it sets up so well for Bryson is because it doesn't penalize you if you hit it wild. You have to get creative from the rough. You have to get creative from different lies, and you're not going to be... Take a U.S. Open, for example, you might just be dead, although Bryson won by however many last time, but I think it'll be a much different setup. So let's just like get into this now then, and we'll talk about like some of the, the favorites and the guys who are going into this. We'll start with Bryson then, because we just talked about him. He is, according to all the odds makers, and we're going to go with FanDuel with this one just for like the specifics, um, he is the odds-on favorite to win it. He is, according to FanDuel, 8-1. to one. I'll put the question to you guys then. One, do you see him as the favorite? Do you see him winning? And two, how do you see him playing this course with his newfound distance and everything? I, I would say he's definitely up there in terms of like, I would almost guarantee him a top 10 finish. When you look at like the U.S. Open, when his misses, like he just had to deal with long rough. When it comes to the Masters, there are some holes where if you do miss, you are penalized. Like I would say on on 10, you know, Tiger even got penalized last Masters when he put it behind a bush, he had to punch out. Same with on 13. If you go left, you're dead. It's it's just all creek there. Same with on 18. You know, it's a very narrow shoot. And if you go left or right on that hole, like, you are absolutely dead and probably going to have to take a drop. One thing I'm kind of curious with Bryson is I really want to see what he does with his drives because he's been playing well going into this tournament, although he hasn't played in a, a couple weeks. And presumably, since he stopped playing, all he's been doing is drinking protein shakes and working out <laughs> and working on his driving distance because very recently he came out and showed that for the first time ever he carried it 400 yards. Now, I don't think he's going to do that in the Masters, or at least consistently. <laughs> but point is, this guy is absolutely bombing it. I want to see what he does on some of these holes. Like, with the wind switching, 10, can he drive it over that bunker in the middle, the McKenzie bunker? Like, I wonder. On the par fives, like, I wonder what he's going to do. Is he going to have a flip wedge into these things? Well, Could, well, Graham, you know this better than I would. I'm pretty sure he was just trying out a new driver that extended him almost another 10 to 15 yards. He is going for 48 inches, which is the longest legal length on the PGA Tour, and he's been clocked at over 200 mile per hour ball speed, which is just... Which is just the alpha male. So Bryson is going to be heard of. I think he's going to be in, if not the final group, the penultimate group in on the Sunday round. The thing about him is... So if you look at the strokes gain stats, which I'm always like very interested in, is if you look at 2020, which is a much larger sample size than 2021, even though he's constantly evolving, is he's number one off the tee. That makes sense. He's absolutely bombing it. He's number one in terms of driving distance. Uh, in 2021, he has 16 confirmed rounds. He's averaging 344 yards off the tee. So here's my overall philosophy on the whole Bryson thing right now is that this isn't a science experiment. He's basically come out saying that I want to be the casino. And what I mean by that is that he's done the math. He's basically said that if I'm in the rough and I'm 25 yards longer than the other guys, even if they're in the fairway, statistically, I'm going to hit it closer than you. And he's not wrong so far, but it's such a small sample size. So we, there's really so much uncertainty when it comes to Bryson. I mean, if you look at his major history before this year he'd never had a top 10 so none not of this like none of his history though matters like his 
past year's history. It's all about what he's done now because he's almost a com- he's a completely different player. Exactly. It's just kind of a matter of is this going to hold up? And it's kind of a very interesting debate because one the thing that's overlooked, he is a great putter. People focus on oh yeah, he hits it a mile and that's why he's winning. You can't win without being a great putter. That's just a fact, but this is all brand new, so no one knows. I actually want to I want to jump on that point. Yes, he's a great putter. In fact, like in 2020, he was for the full season, he was 10th on the tour in strokes gained putting. So the guy can hit the shit out of the ball. He can also putt really well. That's a great combination. And that's why he's contending in all the tournaments that he plays, basically, and winning some as well. The big swing piece for him is his approach shots. Like I just said, the Masters is a second shot course. So in 2021, very small sample size, but that includes the U.S. Open as well, which he won. He's eighth in strokes game approaching. So if he's first in driving, driving eighth in approach, and tenth in putting, it's game over. That guy's going to win every single time. But the thing is, I'm not sure if the approach is sustainable because the entire 2020 season, if you look at the stats, he was 119th in approach shots, which means he's not really taking advantage of the short shots that he had. We'll see what he does in the Masters, but if he doesn't take advantage, then it's wide open. I think he'll still contend, but I'll leave it to you, Brooker. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, if you have a first in driving distance, a top 10 in putting, and an eighth in strokes gained on approach, I mean, that is a recipe for success and a win at this 2020 Masters. It's a win at any tournament, basically. Low-key, Spieth came out in a podcast recently and he said, this is Bryson's tournament to lose. That's a pretty bold statement by one of his fellow competitors. Oh, absolutely. Well, Spieth backed up after as well. I don't know if you guys heard about it, but did you hear Matthew Fitzpatrick, the the statement he had for Bryson? What did he say? He said, it doesn't take skill to hit a ball that far. He's like, I could go out, gain 20 pounds, find a biomechanist, and, you know, it's a lot more skill to hit the ball straight. Well, I'm sorry, but the, as far as he's hitting and how straight he's hitting it for that distance. Matthew Fitzpatrick is a toothpick. Like, Bryson can snap that guy in half. He's twice his size. That being said, Bryson is, like, also for as big as he is, he's a huge dweeb. I'm just going to say this. This is a science experiment for him, his weight gain. Like he's always been the science guy. That's why a lot of guys don't like him. He's so weird. I know a story, for example, when he plays early rounds and he knows they're going to be due on the ball. He has like his his uh, coaches spritz water, like spray water on his practice round balls so he can simulate hitting balls with dew. That's the yeah. type of guy he is. Like, Which I love. Like he's in, he's reinventing <laughs> the game in a sense. Like, I mean... Whether it works out in the long term, time will tell. This has been one season. He's, he's had yeah. two good majors, and honestly, no one really knows what's in the future. I do remember, though, Justin Thomas came back and defended him versus those Fitzpatrick comments and basically called him out pretty hard on Twitter, being like, you know what's harder than uh, hitting it long is actually putting in the work, reinventing your body, putting in hours and hours and hours of grinding out all these scientific experiments and then implementing it yeah no i mean all the respect to bryson i love seeing what bryson has done i mean he's a very interesting character on the pga he's not just some like vanilla dude he actually has a personality so at least it adds some drama i love the brooks kepka and uh bryson like rivalry for example such a juxtaposition of styles where you have bryson who's like the the mad scientist so speaking brooks who's just the jock one of the things I can respect about Bryson to have the courage to actually do this is that 
guys make changes on the PGA Tour and ruin their whole careers for that matter. It's very rare that you see somebody who's playing, you know, like a top 30 player in the world and says, I don't like the way I'm playing. I'm going to reinvent everything and risk your whole career. And he knows that there's a risk that this might not work out and he might not come back from that, but he still went on that path and I respect him. Well, I, I think it's almost actually comical how those two align. I forget what tournament it was, but when Bryson had that shot where it was on top of an anthill, do you recall where it was on top of an anthill and he was trying to get relief from that Is that point? the memorial? Or the memorial, yeah. Right, so and he, then like Brooks and, made and, fun and, of it. Well, Brooks made fun of it because the very next day, it was almost like it was scripted. Brooks was placed right behind that tree, right where that anthill was, and he goes to his caddy. He's like, you think I'm going to get relief from this? My favorite thing that could happen in this 2020 Masters would be Bryson and Brooks paired in contention going into the final round or Saturday. Like That would be awesome. Last note on Bryson then, where do you see him finishing in this tournament? I wouldn't be shocked if he won. I'm not going to pick him to win because I think he's going to put a lot of pressure on himself after winning the last major. My pick for the week, are we getting there yet? Yeah, well, you can get and go sure, for the pick of the week. Why not? I, 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 it's hard to outlook Xander Shoffley for the winning this week. That's my pick. So I'm not going to say he's going to win, but I think he'll contend. But I don't think he's think he's going to put too much pressure on himself and make a mental error. I love the Shoffley pick. Um, I have him up there, but like I said earlier, like Justin Thomas is my pick. But go for Brooker. Where do you see Bryson finishing? Yeah, like I was saying, I, I'd probably say he's going to finish around the top ten. Um, based off what he's done at the U.S. Open and coming into this week with that game, I couldn't see him finishing outside the top 10. I see Bryson coming third, very specifically third, with DJ coming second, because DJ always comes second in these things. (laughs) I think Bryson's going to be there. Like With his game, his floor is so low, he's not going to fall that far. I think if he just plays average for him, he's going to be doing all right. Would you be surprised if he won? No, I wouldn't be shocked at all. He's a favorite for a reason, but I don't think he will. I think it'll take. I think he'll win a Masters. Like, let me make that clear. I just don't think it's gonna be that this year. Let's go then to uh, the guy that we just mentioned and his, I guess, nemesis in Brooks Kepka. He has not played a lot, and he's been coming off injury. He's right now playing in the Houston Open, and as of the recording of this podcast, he finished his first round at two over. So I'll put it to you then, uh, Brooker. What do you see from Brooks going into this Masters? Well, to be honest, him being my favorite player up and coming, and I know a lot of people hate him, the fact that he was pl- he's plus two in today's round and DJ coming out of COVID is plus three, I think he's going to be on par to finish at least. I, I want to put him in the top five. And as bold of a pick that is, with the injuries prevailing him, you know, I think he's, he's going to be up there. Yeah, I agree with that. It's hard to outlook Brooks Kepka when he's had the best major record by none in the last five years. It's not even close. Four wins, eight top tens. He's like been by far the best major guy recently. But we've seen these four-year runs with people, and maybe Brooks like a five-year run, but point being, we've seen these runs with people with Rory early 2010s from like 2011 to 2014-15, absolutely killed it. Spieth from like 2015, like 16, 17, 18 area. And then like Brooks, Right. So like my question is, it seems people can do this. Is it sustainable for him? He doesn't do anything else in the other tournaments, only in the majors. Granted, he has like a great mental game. I'm personally very worried about the fact that he's barely played. So I don't know if I trust his form going into this Masters. Do you think he can just like turn it on like a switch? 
I think he's capable of it. I mean, the Houston Open that's being played the week before will be interesting to see. Would I put much weight into his finish? No, I'd put weight into, is he healthy playing those tournaments? Because he's got such a strong metagame in these majors that he intimidates guys. He's the biggest swinging dick right now on the tour other than tiger when like tiger's in contention but like he's the alpha right now absolutely he has no filter when it comes to that stuff i i also will agree like not that it's necessarily a curse or anything if it's any regular tournament i will not take him because he has stated in the past regular terms for him just don't do it but when it comes to a major he is ready to go and i think as ready as anybody else in this tournament will be he's gonna be fired up Actually, a good point, though, and this is where golf is very psychological, is that he was invincible for three or four years because he never faltered. The last major that he played, which was the PJ Championship this year, he was second going into the final round, and he came out very bold, criticizing all the players, saying, these guys have never won a major, and he crumbled. So that might weigh an effect on how he views himself. I mean... Don't go too far other than Spieth. He was the best player in the world for a long time. Absolutely crumbled at the Masters. Never been the same. Yeah, but at the same time, like, when you got a girlfriend like his, like, that that boosts the ego. That, that, that keeps it going. Like, I don't know about that. I think, like, I think he gets over that. Also, apparently he got hurt midway through that tournament. So it's somewhat understandable why he shot that 74 in the final round and ended up being 29th or, what was it, 28th in the PGA. Like, he was in contention for that, despite where the standings were. Yeah, he was getting stretched out during that round, too. Yeah. He was definitely hurt. It's more a question of, will that affect his mentality that he couldn't close and crumbled? Like, I mean, hurt or not, he crumbled. There's well, I, no... I, will, I will say one thing that stands a test to his mental game, and we watched this in the 2019 Masters. When you saw Tiger get to the 16th tee and literally almost got a hole-in-one, Brooks was on 17. And while they were chanting Tiger Woods' name, Brooks stepped up to that tee and literally just piped a drive down 17, like with no hesitations or anything. Well, he was playing well. He knew. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like mental game, I think he was ready for that shot. I, to finish off on uh, Brooks, I don't think he's going to win. I don't think he's like really going to contend, to be honest. I think he's going to make the cut. I think he'll be like a top 20, but... I don't think his form is major ready right now. I think, like, you need to be playing a little bit more. And I could probably say the same thing about DJ. And let's get into this then. Other than Bryson, and I mentioned Brooks, the next top contenders, just to list them off as one, there's John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, Xander Shoffley, and also Patrick Cantley. Out of those guys, who are some of the guys that you're looking at to make big moves like, what are your thoughts on these people? Yeah, I know I stated Bryson in the top 10, but if I had to pick an outright winner, the two guys I'm looking at this week is definitely John Rahm or Xander Shoffley. I mean, if you look at Rahm, uh, this year he was tied for second in the Zozo, tied for 23rd in the U.S. Open, tied for 13th in the PGA, and Masters history, who is fourth in 2018, ninth in 2019. So he is, one, playing really good golf right now, and is setting him up for a very good Masters. If you look at Shoffley, like we were talking before, across the board in terms of golf, golf statistics, like there's no error in his bag, especially with the putter. So, And off his finishes of recently in majors, he has seven top tens over the last two years, five top fives. Like this guy hasn't won a major yet, but he is due, and he's due within the next year. Yeah, I just want to jump off that on that point because... 
off pod for the listeners out there, um, I was talking to these guys about like some of the, the, the strokes gain stats that I saw. And one thing that you'll note is that many of these guys excel at certain parts of their game and then other parts lag. For example, Rory McIlroy, great tee to green, can't putt at all. Like he's actually 122nd in strokes gain putting. Xander yeah. Shoffley is one of the one guys um, that is all around just good in everything. There's nothing that he struggles at. He's an all around solid player, which bodes very well for majors and very well for like frankly any tournament and stress tests. So that's a good reason why you picked him to win, Graham. Yeah, the thing is with Shoffley is that. He's already got the first Masters out of the way. Everyone knows the first Masters, you never do well. He came 50th. He went from 50th to second in two starts. Clearly, the guy knows how to play. He studies the game. We'll see what happens. Yeah, Xander's a great pick. I can totally see him winning, but I don't see him winning because I see JT winning. Before I talk about JT, though, I want to talk about Rory. And um, I see Rory doing what I call the Rory Special. And that is, he's going to slip in to a top 5, top 10 on the back door. Rory is one of the weakest mental players for, like, a pure player on tour that I've seen in a while. I swear to God, he was better as, like, a pudgy 22-year-old than he is as this lean 30-year-old. He will play great the first two rounds. Then on a Saturday, he'll play not very well. And then he'll seemingly be out of it, but then have a good Sunday. And next thing you know, it's like, oh my God, Rory, top five. How about that? Now, mind you, this is all in the last five years. Because he... This is what he's been. This is what he's been for a while. There's no debating. He's the best player of the last decade by none. Like talent-wise. No, 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 no. Results-wise. There's not a... There's not. I would disagree. I think Dustin Johnson has had a better decade than Absolutely Rory. Absolutely not. Rory's got four major championships and probably... And not much else, right? Like, I mean, he's still got 30 wins, professional wins, 18 on the PGA Tour, 14 on the European Tour. That's European Tour. I mean, like, look, that's that's a good thing. Like, good for him. He had, like, a really good run, especially in the early... How many of that is in the early 2010s? Well, like, probably a majority, Who rivals right? that, though? Okay, maybe I'm wrong on this, but Dustin's had an amazing run he's been bad at majors granted but then like he's always the runner-up but on the pj tour this guy is money all the time he's always good for like several wins rory hasn't won in over a year the last win he had was the wgc hsbc tournament october 2019 it's been a while and i mean rory's tee to green game is sublime he is one of the purest players out there terrible putter which hurts him in tournaments for winning dj also not a great putter but surprisingly good in the sense that he is 48th in strokes game putting last year rory was 122nd and he was losing strokes on putting so it's like kind of interesting in that don't get me wrong i think dustin johnson has the potential to be the best player of the decade but he stripped away two or three majors that he didn't win well the decade's kind of done so (laughs) um we can probably bookend that one but fair enough they're both like amazing players but with my issue with rory and i love rory he is my favorite golfer i I think it's a recency bias though of how bad he's played because he was phenomenal before the last five years there's always going to be the argument there of who was the best player of the last decade like when you realistically look at it there's an argument over who is the best player of all time. Is it Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas? Yeah, well, we're not going to get into that now. We're not going to get into that now, obviously. But I think the thing I will touch on on Rory, which is the biggest factor coming into the Masters, is this guy's going for a grand slam. And this tournament has ailed him every single time he's going into it. He has underperformed. 
we're or, working on we're working on nine years ago where he hooked that shot on number ten. Uh, absolutely, and and going back to say, talking about his mental game, I think that is one of the biggest factors here. I think that's a crucial point to make about Rory, though. It's all relative to his standards because he's still in the top one percentile of, of performers in the Masters out of the whole PGA Tour in the last ten years. He had five top tens in a row from two thousand and fourteen to two thousand and eighteen. It's not like he's bad. He's he's still a great golfer just in relative to his peak he's not playing as well and that's a mentality thing with most other uh golfers they get a top five it's like wow that was a great tournament with rory he's so talented he can get in top five top ten in his sleep it's the fact that he can't close out tournaments that's very frustrating for rory fans and makes you a little pessimistic about his master's chances but what was the worst club in his bag clearly his putter which at the masters you need a good putter to win that major I still think he'll win one. I really do. I think he will complete the career grand slam, but he's just like, he's frustrating. I don't see it this year. Is what hey, at the, end of, at the end of the day, there's no fans here. We're also playing in November, so this is a new course to everyone. Yeah. And if, if there is an advantage for Rory, maybe he just needs there to be no fans for him to win. We shouldn't overlook that storyline, though. Rory could win the grand slam. He's on a short list of players. Five have ever won all four majors, so... That would be cool to see. Well, he's definitely one of the purest talents that the the PJ Tour has seen in a long time. Like other than the group of uh, like Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and like that cohort. Like after that, he's like one of the best guys that there is. He's just been kind of disappointing since his torrid start. So I think he'll end up doing the same thing. I think he'll end up in the top ten, and you'll see you'll kind of notice him on Saturday, but he won't pull it together. And then next thing you know, on Sunday, he finishes off and it's like, oh, wow, it's like 66 on Sunday. Backdoors the top 10. Good for Rory. I want to get on Justin Thomas, and here's why I think he's going to win. The guy was, in 2020, for the full season, number one in strokes gained approach. The guy's the best, uh, guy's the best ball striker on tour. And I think it's going to be really important for in this tournament because he averages 305 yards off the tee. So he's long enough, especially when you remember the 297-yard average that is Masters winners driving distance. He has enough distance. It's about what he can do with his second shots. And I think he's primed with a longer course where most guys can't go for it in two. Maybe he goes like and he sticks some wedges. I really think that he can win this one. And mentally, he's there. He competes in a lot of tournaments. He's going in very strong into the Masters. I think he's got a great shot, and he's my pick. The one counter I'd have to that is that he fades the golf ball. If you're a right-handed golfer, it's a draw golf course. It favors so many hole locations, so many tee shots, and he's not a great putter. That's true. Relatively speaking, he's not a great putter. He's going to have to have a good putting week, and you're also correct on the fact that he does fade the golf ball traditionally, but with certain of the tougher holes being downwind i'm talking about like five i'm talking about 10 i'm talking about 11 um and then certain key holes into the wind 13 like a lot of guys might not be able to go for it anyway it's easier to turn around a three wood so on like holes that are downwind you can just turn around a three wood instead of taking the driver for example and like secondly on that he has low rounds at augusta he hasn't put it together yet but he has low rounds. And if you look at past winners, there's guys who have gone from tied 37th, tied 25th to suddenly like number one. And Justin Thomas is very much good enough to win this tournament. And like, I just think it sets up well for him, but we'll see. Let's move off from that group. And let's talk about the guy who won it last year. Let's get our Tiger talk in. 
Tiger is 34 to 1 odds, according to FanDuel. So a lot of people are not on El Tigre right now. Where do you guys see him finishing? I hate to say this, but I can't see him contending. He's not been in contention the entire season. Low-key, he kind of looks injured. He is doesn't look like he has the speed that he did last year. It's just he's not hitting it as long. Yeah, I can't see him contending, but who knows? And he's not putting well. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with those those points that Graham has made. At best, I'll put him inside the top 30. But with his previous performances in the 2020 season, you know, there's not much there to really get me on board with the Tiger train of, you know, winning, going back to back, let's say. I kind of agree with you guys. Like, I think he makes the cut. I don't think he'll contend that much in this this Masters. I mean, when you compare what he was going into in 2019, I mean, the last three tournaments that he did before he went to the Masters 2019 was the Genesis Open, where he finished tied for 15th, the WGC Mexico Championship, where he was a tied for 10th, and then the Players, where he was tied for 30th. But, like, he was competing. And, like, going into this year, he was... Uh, he was cut at the U.S. Open, um, and he also finished like very low in the the Zozo Championship. Yeah, it also um, a factor, and he also came second in the PGA prior leading into the Masters, right? In exactly. And so, he held the lead in the British Open with nine holes left before that, so he was actually playing well in all the big events. He was showing the success. Won the Tour absolutely. Championship was playing well. Yeah, he's like he's looking a lot more stiff. These days, by the way, he was 72nd at the Zozo Championship. I just checked. But I will say this about Tiger and Augusta. Because every single year is at the same tournament, guys who do well at Augusta generally do well like year in, year out. Look at Freddie Couples. The guy has been contending in the PGA Tour for years, and yet in very recent Masters pasts, he's kind of in contention on the Sunday. Tiger, the same thing. He does very well at Augusta. His worst finish since 2005 is a tied for 32nd in 2018. And we're talking about times where he came back, like when he came back after the sex scandal in the 2010 Masters, finished fourth. In 2013, we forget about this. He almost won that. He was tied for the lead going into 13 on the Friday round. Hit the pin on 13. If he didn't hit the pin, he would have stuck that. He would have made a birdie. Instead, he goes into the water. And then there's that whole uh, debacle about the illegal drop and everything. He almost won it. Point is, this guy's really good at Augusta. He knows this course. It's very comfortable for him. It suits his eye. So I think he's going to make the cut. I think he might make a little noise early. And like with Tiger, like anything he does is going to be like under a microscope. But I don't think he's in the form this year. I think he can tend in future ones, but I don't think this is his year. It's another bittersweet moment for him because I think the higher the scores, the more it will help him in the long run. But what counters that is the fact that the fans aren't there and you don't have the Tiger Roars that you see at a Masters. So it's kind of a little bit of a give-and-take situation. It's like you want the higher scores probably with the way that he's playing, somewhere like a minus eight kind of finish. Whereas if he had the fans there, then... Yeah, he doesn't get those Tiger Roars. That's a good point. Now let's move on to another old guard guy, and that is Phil Mickelson. Uh, Brooker, I'll put it to you first. Where are you seeing Lefty finish? Right now, he is 70-1 to 1 odds. Last year, he finished tied for 18th. I think Lefty's more worried about his calves and fireside with Phil than he is about the Masters this year, to, to be perfectly frank. And the way that he's playing, I don't. I, I honestly could see him missing the cut. How much stock do you take on his Champions Tour victories? Two for two on that. He's beating 50-year-olds, 50 50-plus. 50 <laughs> it's going to help the confidence a little bit, but... 
I don't put much weight into it. It's a completely different tour, different length. I think he has zero chance to win. A great week for Phil this week would be 15th. And I don't see it happening. 45th place. Would you bet him into a, a top 20 finish? No, I would bet against. If I had to pick one or the other, against. What about making the cut? I think he has enough experience around the golf course that he will make the cut. I think he makes the cut, but I also I think he doesn't contend. I don't think I think Tiger is going to do better than Phil. I mean, this is the one major where history and course management, knowing how to play it, really matters. Because if you look at every other major, it's played at a different course. The Masters always always played at Augusta, so I think that definitely favors Phil if he's going to make the cut and try and squeak out maybe a top twenty finish. Okay, let's like now quickly run off some longer shots, and we'll talk about the rookies. So. Longer shots in this tournament. We got guys like Bubba Watson, 25 to 1, Patrick Reed, 28 to 1, Terrell Hatton, 30 to 1, Tony Finau, 31 to 1, and Webb Simpson, 33 to 1. Graham, I'll put this to you first. Out of that group of guys, who is a guy that you look to to have a good weekend at Augusta? Definitely the one that comes to mind there is Tony Finau. He's long enough that he'll be able to contend at this course. He came top five last year. Yeah, Finau, and then I would say Webb. I agree with you. Tony Finau to me at 31 to 1 is like a better bet to me than like a Brooks Kepka at 22 to 1, which he is, or like even a guy like, for example, John Rahm at like 10 to 1, because that's him to win. Like Tony Finau hits it just the same as them. Difference is obviously him under pressure, he has struggled. And also, like, his putting is not nearly the same as John Rahm, for example, who's actually a pretty good putter. But if you're talking about a guy who has the talent, it's right there. He's contended in a ton of tournaments. You wonder if maybe this is the one that he can pull through. It's happened before with the Masters. But, like, that's a pretty good bet. I really like Tony Finau. I I 100% agree with Tony Finau. Like, the fact that he fired his caddy midway through the season, um, he also... He had collapses going into final rounds, but if you're actually looking at him coming into this Masters, it's probably the best that he's played. Uh, tied for 11th in the Zozo, tied for 8th in the U.S. Open, and tied for 4th in the PGA. I mean, he's playing the hottest golf he's probably played going into the Masters. And I, The fact that, like Graham said, he finished in the top 10, top 5 last Masters, he's due for success. In terms of who I love, love, love coming out of that group that you're talking about is Bubba. Uh, Bubba was tied for 7th in the CJ Cup, tied for 4th in the Zozo, and is a lefty, which, like I said before, favors this course. I would say Bubba, in terms of the players, you know, people probably forgotten him, even though this guy's won twice at the Masters in 2012 and 2014. Bubba's one of those guys, like, he's so variable at Augusta. Like, he's been cut, like, four different times. He's won twice. He's got a couple top fours or something. Like, he is hot and cold. He's almost like a worse version of Phil. And like, <laughs> uh, like, to be honest, like he is such a high variance guy. He's one of the top players in the world when he's playing well, but he just doesn't bring that all the time. That being said, at Augusta, he's very comfortable there. He likes that course, and more often than not, he does well. I think Bubba's a really good bet in this one. I just love his up- upbringing. Like, the guy's never had an instructor. All he does is shape the ball to the way his eye fits. Okay, now we're going to switch quickly to the rookies, because I think like this... There's two storylines from this. One, this is one of the most talented rookie classes for the Masters I've seen in a while. One. And two is, typically rookies don't do well at the Masters. The last rookie, Masters rookie to win was 1979 Fuzzy Zeller. That being said, there's no fans this year. Maybe that affects the pressure that you would normally feel on a Sunday. With these guys being particularly talented, 
One, Colin Morikawa, already with a major. Another, Matthew Wolf, who's contended in very recent majors and really threatened. I put it to you guys. Do you guys see some of these rookies having a chance? I would give three guys a chance. You mentioned two of them. I like Morikawa. He's already won a major. It's hard to argue against that. I would also say Wolf hits it long enough at this course that if he gets hot with the putter, you never know. And the the other guy is uh, Scotty Scheffler, who unfortunately, last major, he had to withdraw because of COVID. And that might be another storyline. Is this anybody going to have to withdraw because of COVID? It's a different... Honestly, I didn't really like consider the COVID storyline. I just assumed everyone would be fine. But that's like also very true. It is true. Like We got super lucky that DJ is going to be able to come back this week for for the mountain until he until he slips on stairs right (laughs) so far brooks dj for sure and i'm sure there's others but those are two notable superstars who've already had to withdraw from event because of covid scotty scheffler was a rookie missed the u.s open uh he was playing he came second in the pga he's playing phenomenal fourth fourth in the pga fourth yeah he was right. But there. still, but still, like as a rookie, like in terms of a guy coming up, I would, I would agree the third person I'd put in that category would be Scotty. I'll say my piece about Colin Morikawa is I mean, if you look at the stats, like in 2020, he was second in ball striking next to Justin Thomas. He's one of the purest strikers of the ball on tour, clearly, and he's only 23 and a rookie. That being said, he was very hot right after the restart. He started coming in top fives, top threes, won the PGA. He's since slowed down. He was cut at the U.S. Open, cut at the Shriners, and his most recent event, the Zozo, he was top 50, or tied for 50, I should say. So he's not playing his best. That being said, he hits it really pure. He can totally win this tournament, or at least contend. Frankly, I don't think any of these guys are winning because it's just so hard. You don't know the course. But my pick to be the best out of these rookies is Matthew Wolf. He's one of my favorite golfers that I've seen come up in a while after Rory. He is a pure hitter the guy just smacks the ball he's like ninth in driving distance he absolutely pures it off the, the best part fairway. about matthew wolf though you never know what you're gonna get he could be the best player in the world for three months and then he could be off the planet yeah, so i don't see that you could go wrong with either any of the three of those guys no love for cameron champ oh that's a good call the guy's a second in driving distance second in stroke gain strokes gain driving as well after bryson yeah. But everything else, he's negative. He's a pure driver, and then approach around the green, putting, loses strokes there. It's pretty hard to win at Augusta when you don't have a great short game. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the pod so far. You know, here at the Inquisitive Bro, we're always thinking about ways to enhance your listening experience. And that's why I'm very excited to tell you about a new podcast add-on we're doing called Podnotes. Now you may be wondering, well, what are Podnotes, and where can I find them? Well, basically... During the podcast, you may hear us from time to time make references to videos, images, charts, or graphs that we can't visually share with you because, well, you're listening to us. This is where Podnotes come in. All the visual references that we make during the podcasts are going to be bundled into a single Instagram post that you can find on our Instagram page, at The Inquisitive Bro. So look out for this pod's Podnotes and the Podnotes for future pods to come. Now, back to the pod. Okay, we're back, and we're going to talk about now our favorite Masters moments. And I should note that Andrew's now back because he's probably going to talk about a Tiger moment, I assume. Yeah, so I'm back. I'm going to get shawarma, but I'm back. But, like, the best Masters moments are Tiger moments, so I don't know what we're really going to be talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, hold up. Before we get into this, though, like, I wasn't you. So, like, did you guys have Tiger winning this tournament or not? No shot. 
No shot. All three of you? Yeah, no, he's barely... He's what was the cut. highest finish that we thought Tiger was going to end up at? I think he'll be, like, tied for 32nd, just like he was in, like, That's 2018. That's you? Middle of the pack. Make the cut and not contend. You two? Middle of the pack? I'd say tied for 30th. I'd be dreaming if he went back-to-back here. Okay, first of all, I'm very upset that nobody else wore Tiger red for this podcast. I was the only one. Second of all, tied for 30th. You guys are out of your minds. Okay, where are, gonna, t- where, where are you going to say you This is a Tiger course. Uh, top 10, easy. Top 10? Let's be honest. He's going to win the tournament. No, forget top 10. Tiger's so, taking the cup. You heard it here first. Tiger is going back-to-back. He's takes, winning the tournament. This is not hot takes at all. <laughs> anyway, you want okay. to let's get into some Yeah, moments. let's get to the moments. It's not going to be all Tiger moments. I can at least diversify some of these moments. But, Andrew, if you want to go first, you can talk about your favorite Tiger moment at the Masters. Okay, I mean, I really have one, which is the chip. Because I remember watching it. I remember being young. The 05 chip um, where he chips it high. It rolls all the way back down. It stops right on the ledge. You get that nice little, like, Nike logo for the sponsor. And then it falls in. That's a great moment, man. Everybody remembers that. Well, here it comes. Oh, my goodness. Like that. That's one of the top master shots of all time. The crowd too was like, oh, <laughs> and then it didn't go in. It didn't have that extra half roll, and then went, oh, and then when it fell, it was like, oh, they brought it back. Just a great moment, man. It was the uh, way the ball actually oscillated on the lip, like Andrew was saying. It was prime for a Nike commercial. Yeah, it was the, a Nike ad. Yeah. Show that logo, then drop. So, Brooker, why don't you go with your favorite Masters moment that you can remember, not being the chip? <laughs> like, I would say, obviously, the chip would be mine, but if I had to pick a, another player, it would be Bubba Watson in the playoff on hole 10. Like, the way where he put that tee shot, there was no chance he was winning this playoff against Louis Oosthuizen. He put it, one for one, in the bushes, behind a TV tower. The only way he could actually pull off that shot was because he was a left-handed player. He had to go out at least 40 yards hook a gap wedge, and with enough spin to keep it on the green. He told me on the range he hit a wedge, slightly helping, 176 yards on the range. So, with a bit of dread on it, he might get 190. There's 155. Did it hook? Oh, what a shot! Look at it. Snap hooking on the green and incredible. Absolutely incredible. It was insane. Like they actually did a science right up behind like a sports science, right? Like they did a sports science up on Bubba Watson about that shot and it didn't make any sense. And I think the only person that could have actually performed that shot was him because of like what I said previously in his upbringing. The guy had no instructor. He doesn't know how to hit the ball straight. He only shapes his shots. So with a gap wedge in hand, deal off that gap wedge, snap it around, hook it, have it spin to like 10 feet and close out that Masters. Louie must have been looking at that like, I have this in the bag. And when that shot was pulled off, he's like, well, guess I'm not winning here. Only Bubba with the wonky way that he plays golf. Like only he could have pulled it off. And it's the shot of his career. It's kind of crazy that like that 2012 Masters, you're like, okay, you know, he won it, whatever. He's going to be a one-time guy. 
And then he won another one. And like the 2014 Masters was almost more surprising because now you're thinking like Bubba Watson, two-time Masters winner? Jesus. Like, you don't think about that. Sure. Um, Graham, okay, you go. Your favorite Masters moment. Okay, I'm going to actually mention two here, and I'm going from a completely different take. Not to flex here, but I did happen to go to the Masters in 2012. So I'm going to go with a little bit of a comedy story here at the Masters. The driving range is behind hole one. And we were in the front nine with my dad and to get back to the driving range because Tiger and Rory were practicing at the same time. We thought that'd be cool. We passed by the first tee. And on the first tee, we see Martin Keimer, who's one of the best players in the world at the time, with Mike Weir, past champion, and he's struggling. Martin Keimer hits this beautiful tee shot, 320 yards straight down the middle. Mike Weir, poor guy, steps up. And just snap hooks this ball like 80 yards down the hill. Like it doesn't even <laughs> make like literally it, you wouldn't even think this spot that Mike Weir hit was on the golf course. It was just the ugliest golf shot I've seen a professional hit by none. And you could just you felt bad for him. But at the same time, it, it stuck out as kind of a funny moment. That's kind of hilarious. If you ever go to a professional golf tournament, to the listeners out there, do yourself a favor and go to the driving range because the way those guys hit those balls constantly over and over and over again is very interesting to see. And like, it really puts it in perspective how shitty you are compared to them. Definitely hit up the driving range because I had never been to a PGA event and the three of us, Chris and Graham and I went down to the PGA championship at Beth Page and I honestly couldn't believe what these guys could do on the range because if you're out on the course it's one thing you're only going to see a fair like amount of shots but if you're sitting there you can sit on the range for an hour and just really get the detail of what these guys can do and it's absolutely phenomenal which leaves me to my favorite story at the masters which i was there on the friday afternoon with my dad and tiger was the last group that finished up play that day and it was getting dark out and my dad asked me do you want to go to the souvenir shop? I said, not really, to be honest. So I said, let's go to the driving range. And he kind of looked at me like, are you insane? Like, who's going to be on the driving range right now? And there we go up to the driving range, and there's two people, Tiger and Charles Schwartzel, who was a defending champion the year before. And it was this, he was not even in contention. He made the cut on the dot, but he was still so angry at himself and grinding it out. And he literally hit for like 45 minutes into the dark. And it sticks out to me being like, he was grinding then. And then it makes it that much more remarkable that 10 years later, he ends up winning. To put in perspective, you were, how many people were in the, the, the stands at that point? Were you basically the only one? There was about 15 or 20 spectators. So it was just basically you and a very small handful of people very close just watching tiger hit balls it was amazing that's incredible and it, if you ask my dad he'll say the same thing it's by far his best experience of the masters was that so i'm gonna do two then i'm gonna do a negative one and a positive one first i'll go with the positive one one of my favorite moments in a master's history in 2004 watching phil make that putt on 18 put this into context my dad is a huge phil fan because he's left-handed um and he was always a Phil fan as long as I can remember, even before Phil won a major. So when Phil made that putt to win the Masters, I swear to God, my dad jumped up just about as high as Phil did when he sunk <laughs> it. Is it his time? Yes! 
that was also a huge moment in like golf history for Phil. Like who knows what happens to him if he doesn't win that Masters. And my other really memorable Masters moment that hasn't already been mentioned is a negative one. Jordan Spieth, 2016. Blows it on number 12. Two shots in the water. He's got a good angle because he's got the gap between the bunkers, so it's not going to scare him if he goes long. Oh my goodness. This is unbelievable. I mean, that cost him a chance to go two straight Masters and also... Uh, like it's just such a shitty moment <laughs> for him. Like, it was incredible. At that point, he seemed invincible. Like, you thought for a sec, like, he was the next guy. He never knew. He was in contending in all the majors. He had his own, like, four-year stretch. We were talking about four-year stretches with, like, Rory and Brooks and stuff, right? Like, that was his four-year stretch, and he blew that one, like, Never underestimate what doubt will do to somebody in golf. Especially with like mind games, like the like the mental side of golf. I think it's like ninety percent is mental when it comes down to golf. And speaking of Spieth, like yeah, he walked that tournament to Danny Willett. But if you actually look at Spieth, the way he was playing, it was all about his putter. This guy used to line up ten foot putts and look at the hole and drain them like they're nothing. Like that's how he used to play. He let that go. Now he's going back to a traditional, you know, putting stance and not looking at the hole and just aligning himself properly but yeah you never you never know say he doesn't go in the water there does it change his career maybe so but it's it's hard to tell i don't know since he did win a major after it the the british open um but it's an interesting thought process like it's definitely like a a critical juncture in his career spieth by the way 38 to 1 odds to to win it he plays well at the masters i think he's actually a pretty good bet to like be like maybe top 20 if you want to get some value at that i don't know i'm taking it from a different approach is that i think he's almost drawing dead just looking at his 2020 statistics he's, he's like, not playing well he's that's for like sure 221st in greens regulation and he's 105th in strokes gained putting that's not a very good combination no not at all okay very quickly to wrap it up uh i'll pose this to you first graham how do you see this masters going like some of the things you're looking for I mean, the two things are the lack of spectators and the scenery. I think it'll be interesting to see holes that are wide open without the spectators and the weather. Cool. Broker? I'll agree with those points. Uh, I'd probably say Bryson is the one guy I'm looking forward to see, like, what he can do with that driver and how much further he can put it out on certain holes. Yeah, good point. For me, I just want to say I think this is going to be a very close Masters. There's no runaway winner here. Like, I think... It's going to come down to the wire. I think it's going to be very exciting. Look for, as per usual, 13 and 15 down the stretch. Those are big, important holes. Whoever like does well in those might pull it out. For sure. At the end of the day, it's almost impossible to top last year's. <laughs> Unless this Tiger is wins true. again. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Cheers.